This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome back to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. We have a thrilling episode for you this week. At least that's what we're telling ourselves. <laughs> we are going to split some time pretty much evenly with coins and paper money and history and all sorts of education. We also have an interview with somebody who brings a different experience with coin collecting. That's Thomas Babinski, also known as the Blind Coin Collector. So you'll want to tune into that to really get a sense of how somebody can experience collecting in a different way. But before we get to all of this fun content, I think Chris has something to say. Absolutely. We'd just like you to remember that if you've been enjoying the podcast, if you enjoy this episode, if you know someone who you think would enjoy this podcast and the content that we produce, please remember to keep on listening, share it with friends and family, anyone who might enjoy it. And please remember to subscribe on whatever platform uh, you get your podcasts on. Every time someone subscribes to the Coin World podcast, an angel gets its wings. Something like that. So, we're going to start by looking backward into, yeah, well, well, into well, what history. Was happening? What was happening this week in history, This Jeff? week in history, we're, we're heading north, not north to Alaska, but north to Canada, eh? No mention of Trudeau, but we are going to talk about <laughs> something, something that was uh, majorly important numismatically. On September 22nd, 1988, I was a wee lad of nine at that point. This is when Canada began production of the silver maple leaf, the $5 bullion coin. Now, this is the second most popular bullion coin around the world behind the American Eagle. Collectors know or may know that Canada introduced the gold version of the maple leaf bullion coins in 1979, my birth year. And Canada did uh, three nines fine. That's a 999 fine. Three years later, in 1982, they became the first world mint to issue four nines fine gold bullion. And then, six years after that, was the silver bullion coin. They have sold tens of millions of these coins. They've done all sorts of special wildlife and other designs with them. They've even done some pop culture theme designs. But the core maple leaf bullion coin was first started this week 31 years ago speaking of canada but Mm. this time going to paper money okay we're gonna go with a trivia question for you that is canadian paper related all right so let's hear it you haven't heard this yet I'll, i'll i'll give it my very best shot hit me with your best shot pat benatar and i have a lot in common so Canada, eh? Why did Canada print a $25 note? $25 note. Have you ever seen that before? It's a, very, it's a very weird denomination. Canada did this. It was back mm, a long time ago. I don't want to give away the year because that might clue in as to the reason. Mm-hmm. But $25 note, why was it printed? And I'm going to give bonus points if you can tell me when it was 
printed and issued. Ooh, all right. Well, I'm all about extra credit, so that'll be that'll work. I always say, forget about the brownie points. I just want brownies. <laughs> Unfortunately, exactly. I have neither brownies nor brownie points for you, <laughs> listeners or Chris. But that is the question. Why did Canada print a $25 note, paper money, up north? Think about that. We're going to stick with paper money, yep. but move on back to the U.S. with we're, a, a fun note with we're, a... We're moving south. With yeah. a dicey name. <laughs> a dicey name indeed. We are moving back, moving south from Canada to America, and we're also moving down in terms of denomination. We're going from a $25 note down to a $10 note for this week's series. We're talking about the $10 Legal Tender Note series of 1869, referred to colloquially, as Jeff put it in a somewhat dicey way, as the Jackass Note. Now, the name comes from a small print of the eagle, you know, a bald eagle with a flag in its talons, very American image, that appears on the face of the note. Remember, from previous terms of the week segments, the face of a note is like the head side of a coin. It's, you know... The it's obverse. The, it's the equivalent. It's a, it's the equivalent of the head side. The obverse. The face of the note is sort of the front. Yeah. So anyway, on the face, it's a very small design element, a very small device to borrow the coin term, and it appears on the right in the middle of the note at the bottom. So it's it's in the middle horizontally, and then it's at the bottom vertically. And at first glance, it looks sort of like just an eagle with a flag in its arms. It doesn't look especially special. But if you flip it over, some people say that it resembles the head of a donkey. Now, personally, I don't really see it. I don't really see the resemblance at all. Most guidebooks will have a blown-up version of that image somewhere on the page. Now, the 1869 $10 legal tender note also is known as the rainbow note. It has a lot of colorful epithets that refer to it. And it has gained that moniker because it actually, the color varies quite a bit over it. There's, it starts off sort of a, a pale green, almost a teal, and then it goes into a more traditional kind of sort of beige white color and then all of the printed elements the treasury seal and the serial number are all bright red so it's actually very colorful and visually distinctive and there are also two larger vignettes on its face one portraying daniel webster who was a congressman from new hampshire between 1813 and 1817 served as a congressperson from massachusetts between 1845 and his death in 1850 and then he also served as the U.S. Secretary of State between 1841 and 1843. So Daniel Webster has a long and very storied career in politics, and his vignette appears on the left side of the face. The right side of the face... I have face, one of his dictionaries. <laughs> might be a different... Actually, I don't know. Might be a different Webster. Pretty I don't sure. actually know that much about him. Pretty sure it is. Pretty sure it's different. <laughs> and then the right side of the note features another vignette that's actually very symbolically powerful. And it depicts Pocahontas being presented to the Europeans. That's actually the name that's been given to the vignette. It depicts Pocahontas, who in this case is represented more allegorically. I don't think that they went to great pains to capture her precise likeness, but a Native American woman dressed in Native American garb is being presented to a group of you know, ostensibly Caucasian white European women in traditional sort of early modern, late medieval you know, European garb by a white man, a European white man meant to represent Pocahontas' husband, John Rolfe who married her after she was captured during a war between the settlers at Jamestown and other Native Americans in the early 17th century. Now, this vignette is very powerful because it suggests the kind of relationship that Europe had to Native Americans, and the fact that it appeared on a United States banknote in 1869 is actually very powerful because it, it sort of relegates at least my read of it, my putting on my art historian's hat for a second, it 
implies that sort of Native Americans were sort of a curiosity to be sort of taken from wherever they were and then presented to sort of polite society or to a more advanced society. They're sort of fetishized and turned into these kind of, oh, relics of a, of a savage of a savage place or a savage race of people. It's a very powerful image. And in 1869, America was pushing westwards. The Transcontinental Railroad was finished that year, which impelled settlers west. And the construction of that cut through a lot of Native American land, which would in subsequent years and decades be seized. So it articulates a certain view that the U.S. government, it uses an episode from early English colonial history to articulate a sort of an ideology and a, and a national narrative that the U.S. government was sort of keen to promote. And it appears on the face of this very colorful, visually distinctive note known as a rainbow note or a jackass note. They're rather expensive. If, even for one in a rather low grade, you're going to be shelling out quite a bit of money. But nonetheless, it would make a handsome addition to any collection. And if you learn a little bit of the history behind it, it's really quite a fascinating piece. And for somebody who can't afford the real deal, there's a thing called souvenir cards. And it just occurred to me to throw that out there because we often talk about things that are expensive. But in the context of paper money, souvenir cards can usually be found from 5 to $25. So if you can't get the real deal, get a souvenir card. I'm betting it's probably on one and it would make I'm sure. a nice uh, look if you framed it up. So that's that's I didn't mean to be a jackass and jump in while you're <laughs> talking. But so that design has my stamp of approval. Now you are going to give me a counter stamp. <laughs> exactly. It's like a counter argument, a counter stamp. So for our term of the week, we're going to be talking about a counter stamp. Now that's a term that a lot of collectors, particularly more experienced collectors, probably encounter with some frequency in auction catalogs, online forums, at coin shows, coin shops. The term counterstamp does come up a little bit, and very broadly speaking, a counterstamp refers to a, a, a name, a, a word, a character, a design that is stamped onto a coin after the coin has been minted. So, you know, imagine you have a Morgan Silver Dollar, for example, and it's, it's you know, minted, it, it's produced at the mint, and it's shipped out, and then someone else, not affiliated with the mint, puts a counterstamp on it. It means that they stamp anything that is stamped into a coin after its original production, is generally referred to as a counterstamp. Now, there are other terms that sort of get into the minutia of different kinds of counterstamps. Well, like chop marks are a exactly. specific kind of exactly. counterstamp. Exactly. Chop marks are a sort of, are a subcategory of counterstamps. But counterstamps generally refer to any kind of stamp that's applied to a coin after its original mintage. Now, counterstamps can be used for any number of things. Sometimes they can be used as an advertisement. A store or a business or an, or an individual merchant might stamp his name or her name or their name into, uh, into a coin of some kind of function as an advertisement. That way, if someone goes and spends a, you know, a large cent, let's say, there are actually a lot of counterstamp large cents are actually pretty common. One of the most expensive counterstamps are the Brasher doubloons with the EB punch mark on them. Yep. So that's a, a fun little now, thing that none of us, neither Chris or I, can afford, but they're, you're, they're well, very cool. European colonial powers were actually known for using counter stamps because in a lot of cases, the farther flung regions of these different empires, it was hard to ship large amounts of, of precious metal or, or money or anything like that back and forth. So what they would often do is use whatever money was available. So in the Philippines, in the Spanish Empire, counterstamps are actually very common. Oh, in the Caribbean? There's yep. a bunch of them. I've always said, you know, we, we hear the term, it takes money to make money, but this really is taking <laughs> money to make more money. Absolutely. So so certain nations, you know, 
if if someone in the Caribbean in a, a British controlled section of the Caribbean couldn't find a way to tran- to conduct transactions, they would take Spanish coins, coins of the Spanish Empire, and they would stamp their own countermark on them, depending on where they were, and then that coin would essentially be monetized in the British monetary regime instead of the Spanish one. So counterstamps can be used in sort of a practical case to create a currency to fill a void where there might not be one. They would also attest the reason there are chop marks, which are generally thought of in the Asian context. These were merchants who tested the metal to make sure that it was good, and they put their mark on that to attest that this is fine metal and could circulate yep. at full value. Yep. So, and and counter marks, counter stamps were used in that regard. It's well. That's essentially the function of chop marks, which yes. are That's merchant what I'm marks. Saying. Yeah. And, and but there are other counter marks beyond that yes. that were added. Yep. You, I think of the um, the Bank of England and around 1804, where they took. Uh, earlier money and added a countermark because there was a uh, money shortage and there they had a, a recall, I believe. But any, there are numerous episodes from history where countermarks are used. And you may hear that in your numismatic travels and you kind of get a sense for what we're talking about then. Yep. You'll, you'll be able to go forward. If you see something labeled countermark or counterstamped, you will know it is a mark added by a individual, merchant, organization, country, or other entity to either re-monetize or advertise or really modify a coin in any way that they think is useful. Now, I've been reflecting on the question that you posed to me earlier, Jeff, about the Canadian $25 note. And I'm I'm pretty sure I have an answer, but let's, okay. let's remind the listeners what the question was. That's right, Johnny. Tell them what he's won. Oh, no, we don't give anything away here. Sorry. <laughs> It'd be fun if we did a little raffle or something. The question is, why did Canada print a $25 note? And I threw out their little extra credit. You get to feel superior if you get that. As to when that was issued, and I decided not to provide a estimate of how long ago this was. That was uh, that very well could give it away. So $25 note from Canada why and when was it issued? What are you going to tell me, Chris? My original guess was going to be it was probably during some time of economic stress to ease transactions or something. So I was going to guess World War II. And as a way of um, transferring money between banks or some kind of You would have been close in money. a time element, but the reasoning was not correct. Reasoning was off. Okay, what what is the actual reason? When was so, it really issued? So the $25 note marks 25 years of King George V's tenure as King of England. It would be his Silver Jubilee, correct? His Silver Jubilee, and you know that was... George V took over the throne after his father, Edward VII, died in 1910. Correct. So, so 1935. And 25 years, yep, 1935, 1935. You got that right. 1935 had a $25 note in Canada. Very cool. That's right. So now that we've explored all this, these fun topics, we're going to pitch it to our interview with the blind coin collector, Thomas Bavinsky. Had some interesting thoughts about his experience as a collector. Before we go to that, I think one more time we're going to remind the listeners... Remember, if you've been enjoying, if you enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed any of our previous episodes, if you like the content we're putting out, uh, remember 
uh, not only to uh, keep on listening and to subscribe, but we would also love to hear from you. Feel free to send us an email with questions, comments, and anything else. So we'd love to hear from you, and remember to keep listening. We are joined today by Tom Babinski, a numismatist who publishes the blog The Blind Coin Collector and has been engaged in activism and is trying to raise awareness of currencies around the world that are accessible to the visually impaired and what improvements can be made in that area. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. So a lot of people in the numismatic space think of coins and coin collecting as a visual medium, but there's so much more to coins than just their visual appearance. How did you become the blind coin collector? What about coins appealed to you and continues to appeal to you? So it started just like it started with so many other people. When I was six years old, I got a handful of coins and then I got interested, but that interest remained with me. And the coins are by default are very visual and have lots of visual aspects to them, there's so much more, like the culture, the language, the history. For example, one of the oldest coins I had for a long time was a Hungarian coin from 1765 that my grandfather dug out from the garden. Hmm. And uh, I connected to coins in so many ways other than in, in a visual way. Uh, later on, I found out that uh, I'm missing out on a whole lot. I cannot deny that, but uh, on the other hand, I was able to find uh, uh, lots of interesting aspects of coin collecting. So I know that you met Chris in Chicago. I read your blog about your visit to the World Money Fair. This was the second time for you. You mentioned that you had a game plan when you went in. You were you were very focused on hitting certain places because the bourse is so large. So. Is the ANA show sufficiently accommodating for visually impaired folks? What could they improve on? What are some measures that coin show organizers in general, wherever they are, could adopt to make their shows more accessible? Uh, you know, that's a very good question. And uh, I was talking with a few people, and they told me that the show is so huge that even when you can see, it's not necessarily the easiest to get around. And it doesn't have anything to do with the ANA being accommodating or, or not. Simply, there's just so much out there that I learned from a past experience that it was much easier to have an action plan. I was there, I think it was uh, four years ago, and I just went to roam around. And uh, I got to touch lots of interesting things, and I felt that I was missing out on a whole lot because I didn't know what was available. So this year, I wrote to ANA and asked for a document that listed all the exhibitors and uh, tables and anybody who is attending and all the presentations, which they later also published on their website. I just took notes and I wrote down everything with table numbers that I wanted to attend, and I worked my way through one table after the other, and people were extremely helpful. I couldn't believe it. Everybody had a half minute to put me on the right track or show me the next table. Um, it was it was fascinating. Now, I have to say that I don't think too many visually impaired people or particularly blind people will go to the ANA show, given that, let's just uh, face it, coin collecting is not necessarily a very famous blind hobby. But having said that, I met Kevin Brown from the BEP there, whom I've known for many years, who is visually impaired. So I wasn't alone this year. 
one of the questions that people would have is how your experience, how you can engage in the hobby, you know, especially when you're talking, looking at condition or considering condition and toning, that sort of thing. Do you have somebody helping you view those aspects or talk through those aspects? Or does that suddenly then not become material because you're buying the object for the history it represents and the time period from which it comes? Uh, that's a very interesting question. So I pretty much don't worry about the condition, at least not in a way that most numismatists would. Actually, to some extent I do, because I never get the nicest coins. For example, an MS-70 and a holder is not anything that would be useful or enjoyable for me. Up anywhere above 60 is just, I can't tell you the difference by touch, you know, if it's 60 or 65. And let's look at the other aspect. These are so expensive. So imagine that I, I take a coin, I touch it, and it's like driving a brand new car out of the car, car dealership. All of a sudden, it's lost its, its value. Right. So what I'm collecting is the kind of quality that feels probably the best without having qualities that I cannot enjoy just by touch. And those would be in general, the good condition circulation coins. That way I'm, I'm able to get them uh, relatively cheap and I can enjoy it and I'm not spending on something that I, I wouldn't enjoy otherwise. You mentioned a favorite piece being a Hungarian coin that has importance for the, the family connection and the, you know, your background being Hungarian. Do you collect all world coins, U.S. coins? Are you focused just on those from your heritage? What What's your collecting approach? Uh, you know, I, I have to admit, I don't have a, a real strong focus. I uh, primarily collect Hungarian, U.S., Portuguese, and, and East African, if I if I have to pick anything. But I'm, I'm a world coin collector. I collect by type. Uh, on a few occasions, I would pick a particular date, but for the most part, not really, because I cannot feel the date. I just need to know the date so I can place that uh, particular coin in uh, history. But I normally get what appeals to me, either because I go to a coin show and it, it feels nice and I just need to have it, or I read a book and I find it uh, interesting. So, for example, I just got a nice book about the numismatics of uh, Congo and Zaire over the last century. Yes, I'm and jealous I'm of you. <laughs> yeah, That looks like a fun book. It is. It is a fun book. And I have to tell you, I'm just reading it now and I'm going to hit eBay right after that. <laughs> <laughs> In a more contemporary sense, I think something that a lot of people, I would imagine a lot of government officials who work in something like the Bureau of Engraving and Printing or its international analogs would wonder which countries' currencies are the most accessible for visually impaired people and what are the most effective features that can help visually impaired people conduct transactions? I don't want to name any particular country and, and I, I tell you why because I think so many countries are working so hard to try to figure out a good solution on a problem that, that has been at least a, a century old, if, if not older. Certain countries do very well. So what, what happened is that uh, particularly in the 20th century, we started using uh, paper money. Prior to that, many more coins were in circulation 
which were much easier for blind people to identify by touch. So answering your question, I think there's, there's a few criteria that can make uh, currency much more accessible in a particular country. I am finding where there is a relatively lower number of paper denominations out there can be much easier and, and uh, where you can use coins for the most part or for many day-to-day transactions. It also helps when the size of the notes are identifiably different. There's only a, a small difference between the uh, note sizes. It's much harder to tell them apart. It's easier if you have, you know, two in your hand, you know, one is a 20, one is a 50, and then one is smaller than the other. But what happens if uh, that country like India has a 10, a 20, 50, 100, 200, and you have a larger and you have a smaller in your hand, that still doesn't help you out. So uh, many countries started to put tactile markings on their currency. I am uh, doing a research on, on, on this topic right now, and so far I found that more than 30 currencies have tactile marks of some sort, but I don't have information about all of the currencies, so probably this number is uh, uh, slightly higher. And I'm glad you mentioned the differing size component because I see that when I travel to the World Money Fair in Berlin. You know, the euros are different sizes, but here in the U.S., they're all the same. How do you how do you manage that? Or say, I think Canada's are all the same size. It seems many countries have Switzerland, they're different sizes, but, you know, here at home, because you, you live in the U.S., that's not the case. Do you have a reader? I know the BEP was, had been working to provide electronic readers for folks who needed it. What, what are the challenges in the day-to-day because of that? And do you just do electronic payment? Is that more important then? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Uh, electronic payment... Uh would be so much easier, but for somebody like me who is a collector, I just like when uh, my uh, pocket is full of money. Yes. Uh, so I, I do use uh, paper currency or coins. I, I, I love to use it. I, I always feel like I'm holding a piece of culture and history in my hand. It's not much fun to use a credit card, but uh, that's much easier because uh, on a credit card, uh, you can just make a payment and then you can check your bank balance electronically. And, and rectify if uh, something goes wrong. So the U.S. dollar is a very interesting concept because, as, as you said, all the currencies are the same size, and practically they are pretty much the same for, uh, by touch. There might be uh, slight differences, but not the kind of difference that you can uh, identify in a store uh, standing in line. So I use the money recognizer that the BEP distributes to everybody who has uh, qualified uh, print disability. I also use a method of folding my currency differently once I identify it so that I can uh, quickly tell what's what when I need to pay because, let's face it, it, it takes a while to stand in line and, and use the uh, currency identifier. I also have a few phone apps that I can use on my uh, mobile phone. I just hold the uh, uh, currency under the camera, and it works with many different currencies, and uh, it tells me what it is. It is still a tiny bit slow when you have a, a long line behind you. And then when I get money back, I just ask people what it is. And I, I think I can almost estimate the next question, do you trust people? And I, I do. I think I have done thousands of transactions in my whole life, and I only had one bad experience. 
That's great. Now, having said that, I uh, read somewhere recently that they wanted to make uh, Indonesian currency more accessible for blind people because there is lots of, so to say, misidentification of, of currency for blind people and they're given something that what, what it is not. And uh, apparently it's a real big issue there. Here, I, I honestly don't have a problem with that. To return to collecting as a theme for a second, is there a collector community surrounding currencies that have some of these tactile marks or that are these different sizes? I mean, I, I could imagine that especially if one restricted themselves to more recent currency issues, you could probably assemble a pretty fantastic set. I remember at your talk at the ANA, you passed around a binder full of currencies that represented different kinds of of marks that might help out visually impaired people and that had certain distinctive features. Does a collector community exist around these features? Or is that an area that people haven't really expressed quite as large a collecting interest in as of yet? I am really not aware of any community like that. And, and uh, that's the difficulty I'm facing right now, trying to do all this research, is because uh, I, I can't go up to all... Uh, to, to any any groups and ask all my questions. I, I really need to approach each uh, country individually and, and obtain the information in, in any way I can. Uh, so, no, I'm not, not aware. I think I currently have about 15 countries' currencies that, has, uh, that have uh, tactile marks. Part of the problem is that to, to collect everything would be pretty expensive because of the high denomination notes. Uh, so right now I'm trying to assemble a set with uh, notes of lower values. But I, I think it's almost safe to say that I'm, I'm the, one, the only one who has such a collection or at least one of the very few people. Suppose that this is a platform for you and that folks at Banknote manufacturing places around the world would hear this, what would your request or suggestion be to these organizations, government organizations? Uh, in most cases, sometimes you're talking about a private printer that is driving some of the technology behind it, Oberthur and Crane and some of the others. What would you ask them to be mindful of or changes to make that would help. There's certainly been a push. I, know, I think you, you just reported on, was it Kenya that has made some strides with their new, new note series? But 30-some countries, there's, there's almost 200 countries. So there's a long way to go. Uh, my one and only recommendation would be inclusion. Because there are many ways to solve this problem. For example, Canada put uh, groups of dots on their currency, which is relatively easy to recognize, and it doesn't even require the knowledge of uh, Braille as a writing system or the knowledge of, of numbers. The United States provided money readers, which is a very unique approach, when it, but in its own uh, sense, it is practical in so many ways simply because anybody who has a need for this is able to obtain uh, currency recognizer, at least in the United States. So inclusion is the most important part of the approach is think about everybody. Think who would be using your currency. What are their needs and are they able to use it? Put yourself into their shoes. Can they use it if they can't see it? Can they use it if they have limited vision? Can they use it if they have... Uh, limited touch, for example, because of uh, diabetes or 
aging? Can they use it if they can't read? Can they use it if they don't have a telephone or an internet access? Now, it might be a little far-fetched, but let me explain. So recently, there was a big discussion in, in India where the size of the currency has changed and the blind people have such a hard time using the currency. So the um, High Court of Delhi is demanding that the Reserve Bank of India comes up with a solution. So their solution would be to create a phone application that is able to recognize currency. Now, this is a fantastic idea, and it worked in, in so many countries. But think about it. How many people in India have a cell phone? How many people in India have Internet access? And to make it even more complicated, it's unfortunately a world trend that blind people or visually impaired people are much more unemployed than others. And there are countries where the unemployment rate is uh, under 10% for people in general, where the unemployment rate of blind people is 70-80%. So are we serving these, uh, this population with a phone application? So once you keep inclusion in mind and, and think of all of your possible users of those banknotes, I think we can avoid all kinds of uh, currency recognition problems. So have world governments and world currency production facilities, have they been receptive to this sort of – to these discussions and to this kind of, of activism and these kind of questions? And are they, are they very responsive to the needs of the visually impaired and people who are otherwise disadvantaged who might have a hard time accessing certain currencies? Have they been proactive in your experience? Yes, in, in one way or another, yes. Uh, if, if you look at the European Union, for example, they were already uh, thinking about how to make the euros accessible before euros were, were used. And interestingly, I'm, I'm finding more and more uh, news stories from uh, developing countries where they are making currency accessible for uh, visually impaired people or, or people with uh, disabilities. But, but I guess it just uh, depends on the country, depends on the approach, depends on are they changing the currency. I think what we can establish as a trend when a country is changing currency, there is a big likelihood that they'll think about um, accessibility. And it's not just by accident because uh, the different interest groups for people with disabilities are, are very proactive. Um, I, I think the biggest problem is in those countries where they have absolutely no other reason to replace uh, the currency at, at the moment and, and, and uh, that currency is right now not fully accessible. I, I think there is a good trend. I think we're starting to think about it, but I have to say that uh, it will probably take uh, at least a decade or two until we can say that uh, there's going to be accessible currency around the world. And there are some estimates that uh, it, it would be much easier to switch over to electronic payments globally than to fully accessible uh, currency system. So today we've walked the line with you or straddled the fence, as it were, on from the collector side and the practical economic side, the utilitarian side of, of paper money and, and coins to a lesser extent. So let's go back to that collector side. Is there a conceptual or aesthetic dimension to coins and paper money that the visually impaired folks appreciate or understand that isn't widely understood? Certainly, from my standpoint, you know, somebody who can see things might not 
identify things or experience things a way that you would. And so what are you experiencing that I'm not experiencing to my loss? So, so that, that's uh, interesting because uh, coins are in general too small to, to feel everything on them. And, and I, I, I lose uh, lots of information. You know, when I hold a coin, I can tell that there's a hat on it. Uh, I can tell that there's an animal or maybe a building, but I don't know much more about it. I, I would say I experience much less than, than you do, and I would love to say that, on the other hand, this is what I'm experiencing, and there really isn't terribly much. For that matter, I almost feel that collecting coins was an unfortunate decision of picking a hobby because I, I could have picked something that's uh, much more tangible, understandable. But you don't pick a hobby because it's practical. You pick a hobby because you fall in love with it. I love and, that. And that's, that's how I feel about it. Let me tell you one thing that could potentially be interesting here. We used to travel with my parents quite a bit when, when I was a kid. And uh, I noticed that coins sounds or, or the process of payment sounds differently in every single country. So I started grouping uh, coins uh, by country, and if you shake them in a bag or in your hand, they have their own sound that based on the alloy of the coins and based on what kind of and how many coins they use in a particular country, I could I could shake a, a batch of coins and tell you which country they are from if there's only coins from one country. And and I find it, find it fascinating, it's, it, it's very interesting. Coins sound very different. I'm, I, I have an ear for silver coins for sure. I can tell if somebody pays and there's a silver quarter. doesn't happen too often, but I know that immediately. I think it's true to, uh, true for many collectors anyway. That's fascinating and, and a dimension that I'm... I know some people think about the sort of the ring of silver and can, and can tell that sound, but I do imagine, like you say, there's this kind of richness to to the sound even of, of transactions. So anyway, Tom, uh, we really want to thank you for coming on today. This was a really wonderful conversation that I think our listeners are going to be interested in. And I know it's certainly an area of the hobby that before I saw your presentation, I really didn't know too much about or an, an area of, of the development of money and, and things like that, that I really wasn't very well versed on. So thanks so much for, for taking the time to share some of your insight and perspective with us today. The invitation. I, I really appreciate it. And I, I particularly would like to thank you for giving me uh, an opportunity in the platform to talk about uh, accessible currency, because I, I think even though we are on the right track, uh, we still have a long way to go. And, and this needs to be talked about. Awesome. And I would echo what Chris said. Thank you so much. And uh, it's been a pleasure. We really hope that you enjoyed our interview with Tom Babinski. We know a lot of people think of coins as a visual medium, and there's certainly a huge visual and sort of visual aesthetic component to them. But hearing from someone who has had to sort of seek out all the other qualities of coins and find a way to collect them, plus all of his knowledge about ways to make currency and transactions more accessible for the visually impaired was not only very interesting, but a cause that I think all of us as numismatists should reflect on and try to champion in whatever small ways we can. On that note, we will be with you in one more week. Until then, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld 
or on Twitter at CoinWorld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to CoinWorld.com and click on Free Newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the CoinWorld podcast was brought to you by the CoinWorld Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from CoinWorld. With over 40,000 coins available, visit CoinWorld.market to explore our inventory today.